So a man, uh, no, a woman noticed her husband standing on the bathroom scale, sucking in his stomach, and she said, ha, it's not going to help. He said, sure it does. It's the only way I can see the numbers. <laughs> so it's not the case with Absalom, as we shall see today. I mean, he's a man. <clears throat> anyway, in our study today, or last week, we saw the tragic rape of Tamar, the daughter of David, by her half-brother Amnon. And then we saw the premeditated murder plan by Absalom as he waited two long years to get revenge for his sister and him. And then after that murder, he, was, he fled to his maternal grandfather's a long distance away in Gersher. He remained there for three years, estranged from his father and the rest of the family. So chapter 13 closes by stating that the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom. He really missed his son. There are so many sad events that just continue to unfold all a part of God's judgment for the sin with Uriah and Bathsheba in David's life. So no doubt uh, hearing of his son's unbridled passion for David certainly, when he thinks about Amnon, reminds him of himself. So he certainly wasn't violent like Amnon. And David took no measures at all to punish Amnon immediately after the rape. How different things would have been with Absalom if he had actually dealt with what Amnon did. And no doubt it was a struggle for David to punish Absalom for murder when he himself had murdered Uriah, although David was repentant. Now, David has experienced the loss of two of his sons to death and one he is now estranged from that he loved very much. As a king who was uh, supposed to carry out justice for the nation, this must have been such a heavy burden to David. And in reality, he really did nothing about it. So this rather lengthy study of 70 verses, obviously I'm not going to be reading those verses and covering every verse. We kind of have to group summarization. So it begins with Joab's intervention of giving this wise woman an assignment to go see David. So. He, Joab was clearly aware of the situation and obviously troubled him how troubled David was about Absalom and whatever else was going on. So uh, David knew his son was a murderer. He knew he was banned from Israel, and yet his heart was torn by the separation. And Joab had compassion for David, concern for David, and I suspect he cared about Absalom at this point. And being a military leader, it seemed that uh, Joab was concerned about the nation's well-being as well as the king. Perhaps Joab believed that uh, as the now oldest son, Absalom would sit on the throne next in the future. Solomon was still just a child at this point. The fact that Absalom was in exile was not very likely very popular with the people of Israel as well. And so Joab wanted to take this matter into his own hands and try to get a result. So he comes up with this plan uh, to try to bring about reconciliation between David and his son. Job is clearly familiar with this particular wise woman of Tekoa, who had a great skill in acting, obviously, as well as oratory skill. And so he hired her to do this test. So she was to arrive as one who had been mourning for many, many days in order to have the sympathy of the king. And she presents her case as a sad widow in great need of help and protection. Her son, and the only heir left, was guilty of manslaughter, and the rest of the family wanted capital punishment carried out for his killing his own brother. However, if this punishment took place, it would be the end of their property, future heirs, there wasn't going to be anybody else, and she'd have no protection either. 
So she wanted mercy for her son, even though he had done this wrong. He goes on to say, well, David first then dismisses her, uh, in verse 8, uh, promising he would take care of the matter. But she was not yet satisfied uh, with his answer, so she pressed the king for a ruling, trying to maneuver David to see uh, the basis for the return for Absalom. He promises to protect the life of her living son, and then she takes her cue at that point to boldly apply the principle of what judgment David had just rendered. Let's apply it to Absalom. She reminds David that the dead cannot be brought back even by punishing the living. Then David allows her to continue in her clarification. She connects the dots from her fake story to that of Absalom and the king, and she returns to her own story after clearly telling the king to bring his own banished son home. She goes to extreme flattery by calling, you know, David, you're an angel from God. And David's response, being a wise, intelligent man, he saw right through, he knew Joab too well. This is Joab's doing, isn't it? And she defends Joab. She says, in order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this. So again, she flatters the king. Uh, but this plan of Joab has now really trapped David into a quick, wrong decision. David should have sought out a prophet. He should have sought directly the Lord in prayer and asked for wisdom what to do with his son. This woman's story didn't line up accurately with David's situation with Absalom. There were many other sons that David had that could sit on the throne, but it appears that this was very important to Joab to get these two together. David is now trapped to act on what he had already expressed to this woman, that he would show mercy to her son and he must do the same. So that brings us to verse 21. Absalom is allowed to return home. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house, and did not see the king's face. The situation, in reality, resolved absolutely nothing. In, uh, it actually made matters are worse. Absalom had been banished for three years before being allowed to return to Jerusalem, but David did not show any forgiveness for his son, did he, nor show, show any effort at restoration, at fellowship, at communication, that you, I'm your father, you're my son. For two years, David refused to see Absalom, even though he was so close. And this really only refueled the fire of bitterness and resentment and anger that reigned in Absalom's wicked heart. Absalom resented that his father had done nothing on behalf of Tamar, and no doubt he felt that he was justified murdering his half-brother, because he waited two years and his dad did nothing. And so he felt justified of murdering. And uh, that was the consequence then of why he ran away. But after three years from home, and now having returned, nothing is different. It's all the same. He was still estranged from his father. And what is so amazing is that David, who had been forgiven so much by God for murdering Uriah and taking his wife, uh, is not willing to give forgiveness to his own son. David loved Absalom and weeps for Absalom, as we will see. And yet, no doubt, he was torn by the love that he had for him and the guilt of the fact that he had never done any type of justice with Absalom for murdering his brother. Absalom has lots of time now to make plans of how to get back at his father, and this is that bitterness that started after Tamar's rape for two years before he murdered, 
three years in banishment, two years back in Jerusalem. I mean, you talk about the seas of anger and bitterness just escalating at a whole new level. In this situation, David is an example of what not to be and what not to do as a father. Children need unconditional love. They need forgiveness when they do wrong. They need the acceptance of their father. They also need to be corrected when they have done wrong and not overlook a fault or a sin. Failure to discipline a child does not lead them to liking their parents more. Usually it's the opposite. There's a greater resentment. So Absalom's appearance is the next topic in verse 25. I think he was greatly enamored with his own beauty. And uh, we see that the Bible makes it so clear he was stunning uh, from the foot, his foot to the top of his head, not one defect. Uh, love to see what he looked like. He seemed to be enthralled with the beauty of his thick, lustrous hair. And it must have been quite an event every year when he had his annual haircut and it weighed five and a half pounds. I mean, the fact that he measured, I weighed it just shows you how into his own looks he must have been. So he ended up having handsome sons and a beautiful daughter named for his sister Tamar. Nothing new under the sun, you know, the beautiful people, often the popular people. So Absalom then demands an audience with David. He's been waiting two years, he's had enough, and you really see his personality coming out strongly in his actions here. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. So servants are sent to Joab so Absalom could discuss with him that he wants an audience with the king. Uh, and Joab doesn't respond. Joab probably knows. David hasn't changed his mind. Nothing's different. There's no point. But Absalom then orders, as you saw, his servants to set Joab's fields on fire, his crops. So Joab came running. And as I said, the personality, the wickedness of this man to do something so vile. I mean, yes, he was a prince, but this was the military commander in charge to set his fields on fire. I mean, that was a real criminal act in and of itself. So you can see his arrogance, you can see his high-handedness to do whatever he wants to do. Absalom would stop at nothing to get what he wanted. So Joab finally arranges for Absalom to meet with his father. Joab obviously pressured David. So we read in verse 33 that when Absalom came to the king, he prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. However, all the fr uh, frightful seeds of bitterness and rebellion had only intensified through all, all these years of estrangement. David then kissed his son, but it was too little too late. Um, there was no genuine repentance here on anybody's part. Both Joab and David were somewhat forced into this meeting at this time, and, and Joab had, should, rather, should David have put him on trial? Uh, his son? Did the country now think Absalom was back in the good graces of his father and that he's likely to be their next king? <clears throat> Did David even challenge his son's premeditated murder plot? Let's talk about what happened to Amnon. Was there any sorrow over any actions by either? David should have, for, um, should have forgiven his son from the start, but that never means that you don't deal with uh, firmness and resolve in carrying out what is right to be done. David's weakness as a father, the father of Absalom in particular, helped create a son who was unrestrained and about to be completely out of control. There is no weeping recorded in this meeting of these two. And for true healing and biblical forgiveness, it requires that sin be admitted and forsaken. Absalom is so unlike David. David who was so broken and repentant over his sins. 
Absalom was nothing like that. Absalom may have been restored to David's favor in outward appearance, uh, but it was done at the expense of justice. Absalom got back in this at least appearance of good standing with his dad without admitting he had done anything wrong. David did his son no favor in this. The stage is now set for Absalom to use this freedom to carry out the evil that he has bloomed, that has bloomed in his angry heart, that he has been plotting. This is so often the case, ladies, not just in Absalom, but in each of us, when we allow resentment or bitterness to grow in our hearts for an injustice or a fact that we've been sinned against by somebody. It can consume our thoughts so that when there's a moment of free time, there is just a replaying of all those events and what they did to me. And it is consuming. Our hearts are truly deceitful and desperately wicked, and how often we are murderers in our hearts to those we refuse to forgive. You and I are no different than uh, Absalom or David, for that matter. That leads then to the full-blown rebellion of Absalom. Absalom's conspiracy is seen in verses 1 through 12. We've already seen this young man has great tenacity and patience to make a plan and plot and go for the long term. Uh, we saw it in his waiting to murder his brother, Amnon, and now we see him doing the same thing, quietly laying all the groundwork for the rebellion. So he begins with, step number one, his strategy is elevating himself through pomp and ceremony. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. So he makes sure that he is announced, his outward appearance of royalty, as he drives all throughout the land of Israel, with 50 men running before him, announcing his arrival. He is basically giving a parade wherever he went in public, and he's the star. So that's his first step. Next, he makes a plan to be up very early in the morning and to station himself in such a way at the gate where all public hearings of civil matters were addressed. And there, uh, there was usually matters to be resolved by elders of the city and then those more difficult to go before the king. Absalom placed himself in a very prominent place at the city gate in order to set himself up as the judge of the people. Next, uh, he criticizes the king. He actually went after people. He calls out after them uh, to bring their complaints to him. He uh, made sure they listened to him, even if they were on their way to see David. Then Absalom became the epitome of a politician, making all kinds of campaign promises. See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. So Absalom uses flattery with the people bringing their cases. To say everything you've got, you've said is so good, you're, you're so right. And he didn't actually care about justice, obviously, he didn't care about justice, but rather about gaining power for himself. So he casts his father in a terrible light as one who just doesn't care about the needs of people. Besides his attempt of this drive-through justice at the gate, he told the people David simply was uh, too busy to be bothered with people like you. And he was planting many seeds of discontentment in the minds of people who came from all over Israel. It wasn't just local. You know, I mean, they came from long distances if it couldn't be resolved in their local communities. Having laid all this groundwork, now Absalom takes it to another level. Oh, that I were made judge in the land. 
convincing the people that David didn't care about their concerns was the first step. Now he's bringing the solution. He would listen. He would care. If he was in a different position, he would be the one to bring justice to all. In other words, you won't get justice if you go to my father, but with me, you will be treated with justice. He is the one who should have been given justice for his murder. But instead, he's promising to provide justice for other people. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So we see here his great success and his plotted rebellion. No doubt uh, there was kissing of babies, who those who brought their families with, uh, as they met up with him at the gate. And he made himself out to be like one of the guys, one of the best friends you could ever imagine. I'll be there for you. And uh, it was how unlike David was, I thought. You remember David, we studied last year, running for his life time and again from Saul. Could have killed Saul twice easily. But his mindset was, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I cannot bring harm. Absalom had no such concerns or care. He wanted to kill his dad. Didn't care what the Lord thought. Well, Absalom then has great success as he completes, it says, a 40-year. Some say it should say four years. I don't know the result to that, uh, whether it's referring a time further back or it's just supposed to be four. It's really not certain as the story. So Absalom is around 30 now, and it's likely this is the last decade of David's life. So this power-hungry, bitter son has success from all of his efforts. As scripture says, he stole the hearts of the people. He has taken loyalty away from David and taken it to himself. The patient plotting and planning has now paid off, and the time is right to complete Absalom's evil plan. He now uses, don't you love it when people use a spiritual reason to go do something evil? You say, I, I need to pay a vow to the Lord. You know, I promised the Lord I'd, whatever the vow was. And David said, go in peace. One has to wonder why David wasn't more suspicious of his son. Uh, he certainly had to have heard reports of people coming by the gate saying, hey, you know, Absalom's out there, you know. I don't know, where's Joab? Is he on sabbatical? He's on vacation. He's out doing a war. You'd think a military commander would notice there's trouble brewing, but we're just not told. Again, uh, there is a lack of confrontation, though, by whatever David heard about his son, and he did nothing. And now Absalom is, has gone to Hebron. That's the place he was born. That's the first place that David ruled before the country was united behind him as king. About 20 miles distance from Jerusalem, allowed enough distance from the king so that Absalom could keep preparations hidden. Joining Absalom on this journey were 200 unsuspecting individuals who thought they were just going to, you know, have a party and a feast at the vow thing. You know, once that was done, there would be a sacrifice and we'll join Absalom in the feast. They got caught in the middle. There were close conspirators throughout the land who were sent for, and they prepared the announcement that Absalom was now king. Ahithophel, who happened to be the grandfather of Bathsheba, was not far away in Hebron. And when uh, he got the news, he made a traitorous decision to go and be with Absalom. Now, all of his skill and experience and wisdom that Ahithophel had would go to Absalom. <clears throat> One has to wonder if this was payback for the way David treated his grandson. 
Absalom's long-awaited plan, though, had come together and it was set to take power uh, away from David. So at this point, we read in verse 13, Then a messenger comes to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. He really knew what his son had become and what he was like and what he was capable of. Word reached David that his son was successful in a coup and that all hope was lost. It appears that David knew his son, as I said, what he was capable of, in order to avoid a bloodbath happening in Jerusalem. David and his family and faithful friends and military leave quickly. <clears throat> David loved Jerusalem. It was supposed to be a city of peace. And he did not want it to be ransacked or destroyed in any way. He left ten concubines behind to keep house, apparently planning he would return one day. No doubt David thought these women were irrelevant to the situation and would be safe. They had nothing to do with Absalom wanting to kill David. But inadvertently, David set the stage for the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 12's judgment. And these four ten concubines will be used by Absalom to further disgrace his dad. <clears throat> David stops to review all of those who are coming with him in verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. David watches as the long-valued servants and troops and friends show their allegiance to him, including, included in that is a group of loyal 600 mercenary soldiers originally from Gath, Philistines, once enemies, but they had been with David since he was on the run from Saul. And he tried to persuade these Philistine men to just go back to Jerusalem. They didn't need to follow him, particularly Itti of Gath. <clears throat> he wanted them to stay as they would have nothing to fear from Absalom. They were outsiders. However, Itti refused to go back, and he chose to honor his commitment to David, even in banishment. Even in this moment of crisis, how like the Lord, um, or how like the Lord put it on David's heart to think about others. I mean, he is in the worst, the lowest point in his life, and he's thinking about Itzi and what would be best for him. Well, they didn't need to come with this because they were going to go to an unknown banishment, an unknown future, so David's like, no, you're outsiders. Just go back to Jerusalem. This loyalty, though, of Itzi is very similar to that of Ruth uh, to Naomi. When he says, wherever the Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. How ironic to have such a loyal mercenary soldier by your side, in contrast to your own blood son. But the Lord is gracious to send an encouraging man in the worst of times. This mercenary soldier with his wife and his children and all the others put themselves at great risk because of their loyalty to David. Psalm 3 was written during this whole ordeal. It would be good for you to read that tonight because you can have a much better grasp of that whole psalm and why David. David's concern that is for the ark. When he sees Zadok also came with the Levites, with him carrying the ark and the cup of the covenant of God, and crossing the Kidron east of the city, David sees that Zadok and Abathar were bringing the ark out of Jerusalem. David commands that the ark be returned to the city, trusting the Lord to work out his perfect will in this distressing, uncertain event. Then he instructed the priest to remain with the ark and to be there to gather information of what was going on. They would use their sons then to be men to report to David. So here we have a quickly made intelligence operation decided upon. 
David was confident that the will of the Lord is going to be done no matter what happened to him. He was at peace, whether the Lord was going to deliver him or whether he was just no longer going to be king. This study today should bring, as I said, a greater insight into the words of David. I've read that Psalm uh, 3, 5 many times when I've had a hard time falling asleep or been in a position I don't care about. Uh, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. David cries out for help in this crisis, believing the Lord was the shield to him, the lifter of his head, the one who heard his cry. David is in crisis, and yet in the crisis there is an absolute settled confidence that the Lord has all of this in his control. And this is the same truth for everyone. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The actions of an enemy, the unpleasant reality of possible sickness, death, loss of job, family members dying, uh, whatever it is, whenever whatever trial comes, he is still all-powerful, he is still faithful, he is still sovereign, he still has your situation absolutely under his control. David could lay down and go to sleep in the midst of this horrendous, horrendous crisis because of his confidence being that great in the Lord. What about you and me? Do you have that kind of confidence? David's final intelligence plan is put into action in verses 30 through 37. As we see a broken man, really broken man, lowest point had to be, barefooted, weeping, his head covered. <clears throat> and is this the pain of his own son's rebellion? I mean, if you've had the experience of a rebellious son, you know the agony of that. But on top of it, he's trying to kill you. And now, David learns that his beloved, trusted friend, counselor, advisor, had gone on the side of Epsom. That was just another knife in the back and the heart. <clears throat> this was a sword in David's broken heart. David recognized that the wise advice that Ahithophel was capable of giving would absolutely give Absalom great advantage and pose David much greater danger. <clears throat> so at this moment, once David hears this report, he gives a quick prayer to the Lord and asks very specifically, Lord, please thwart the counsel of Ahithophel so it will seem to be foolish to Absalom. A very specific prayer that God will answer very specifically, which we will see next week. After his, this heart-wrenching news, God sends faithful Hushai, the archive, to meet David. He also was in a state of grief over all that was going on. He wanted to go with David, but David said, no, go return to Jerusalem so that he would be in a position to give bad advice to Absalom and that he would actually be the human instrument uh, to answer uh, the prayer that David had prayed regarding Ahithophel. Hushai would play a key role of relying classified information to the priests who would pass it on to the sons, who would pass it on to whoever passed it on to David. Hushai was willing to be put in a very dangerous position, which we'll see next week, in order to help his friend the king. And amazingly, he arrives coming from the city from the east, and Absalom comes in at the same time from the south. They're both arriving in Jerusalem at the same time. Hushai was there for such time as this. So, how does this apply to you and me? Each of us have so much to gain from the study today. And you understand, if you don't study all of the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, you miss so much 
of the truth. If you ignore the Old Testament, you have all kinds of gaps that do not fill in or make sense. There's such a depth of richness by studying every book in the Bible that gives you insight. And, and we love to go to the Psalms, and yet if we don't know what brought about David's prayer and cry in the Psalms, we're missing the whole thing that, and his circumstances. So there's so much to learn from every book of the Bible, as God has said, all scriptures, God breathes and profitable. But what kind of a parent or friend or relative are you? When you think about David, do you love unconditionally? Do you forgive those who have hurt you viciously? Do you repent of your own sinful anger? Do you seek reconciliation? Or are you too proud or too angry to admit your own reaction and your own resentment? Learn from this epic failure of David as a father so you don't alienate the very people you once loved. Now, on the plus side of David, we see an amazing trust in the sovereign God. And he believed God would take care of him no matter how bleak was the outcome. He had such a settled breath and such a subtle peace in his heart. I, I want that. Uh, that he could trust the Lord in the worst of situations. He could go to sleep knowing his son could be sending an army at any moment to overcome and murder him as he laid down. And for all of you ladies who have known the agony of a rebellious child, the Lord's allowed these scriptures for you as well. It's to know you're not alone in that pain, to see that God in the midst of that pain comforted David and gave him grace. And we see again the importance of prayer and the providence of God working through people. God sending Hushai, God working all these circumstances. And David's very specific prayers reminds us where to pray specifically. We can't just do that general, Lord, help be with people and, you know, bless them. What does that mean? He is already with his people. You don't have to ask him to be with them. You know, he is blessed. And be specific in how you pray so you can see the specific answer and rejoice. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for, for the fact that you present all of events that you guided throughout ancient history, and that you have purpose for us to know and understand, because we know you better, and we are able to see individuals and how they responded, what to do like them, and what to not do. I pray that you will take this study and particularly Psalm 3, as we go back and look at that, to just work in our hearts, to have an absolute confidence and rest and trust in you, the sovereign God of the universe, who works all things together for good. In Jesus' name.